From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome to the first in a six-part series brought to you by Are You Not Entertained? The series will investigate Web3, the reality from the Fugazi, uh, whether we have got indeed a completely disruptive change to the way that sport will be consumed and monetized, or whether we have got a flash in the pan of crazy valuations that are going to get a lot of people hurt. I'm delighted to be doing this today with Johan Juncker of Entourage, who have put this series together with me and will be with me over the six months. To set the scene, we've got, I think, the ideal guest. We've got Robbie Jung from Animoca Brands, where he is the CEO. They are clearly the leader in blockchain games. Uh, but more importantly, they are also an investor in some of the biggest companies in the space, from OpenSea to Dapper Labs to Axie Infinity. Uh, they are a major, major player in this ecosystem. So welcome, Robbie. Robbie, great to have you here. Nice to be here. Thanks, gentlemen. And of course, I, I am joined because I, I feel I'm slightly above my pay grade here by um, my partner in crime, uh, Johan Juncker, who is the founder and chief executive of Entourage, one of the players in sport and Web 3.0. Uh, so I'm going to kick this off, Robbie. Uh, I've heard two or three of your podcasts and some of them have been absolutely illuminating for me. Tell us a little bit about the confusion that's in the industry just now. You know, you've got uh, words like blockchain, mm-hmm. crypto, you've got metaverse, NFTs and token. Give us a little bit of a, a, a an understanding of how all these fit together. Sure. No problem. I'll start from the beginning. Um, so this is all about... Um, the invention of blockchain. Blockchain was invented for the purpose of Bitcoin, and most people are familiar with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was the original uh, cryptocurrency, um, and in order for it to exist, um, the blockchain had to be invented, which is basically a digital letter ledger that records each Bitcoin, and a Bitcoin is a token. So each token is recorded on that ledger, and it's public record, and so therefore it's not able to be um, you know, uh, it's not able to be copied or defrauded or faked or anything like that because it's a it's a public ledger. Everybody can just go on the internet and check it, which keeps it honest. And that's the important part. And so <clears throat> the creation of blockchain for Bitcoin inspired a lot of people to think about, well, what could happen if we actually started to build software on top of this basic technology? So Bitcoin is very simplistic. You have a Bitcoin it is what it is. If you think it's worth something, then you can swap it with somebody else and they can take your Bitcoin and do what they like with it. Very similar to gold, which is why I think people always view it as sort of the gold of the digital currency world. Yep. Now, when Ethereum came along, which is the second most popular blockchain, Ethereum brought with it programmability and the ability to have software on tokens. And this was exciting because you could actually then have these tokens be more than just a static object, you could actually imbue them with software powers. And that's a really powerful idea because it allows software developers to basically create all kinds of new concepts on top. And a team in Vancouver did this in the summer of 2017 at a hackathon. And they decided we're going to take what are essentially cryptocurrency tokens and we're going to make a version which is unique. So when you have a Bitcoin, they're not unique. You have a Bitcoin, I have a Bitcoin, we trade, we both still have one Bitcoin because all Bitcoins are the same. They're what we call fungible tokens. So they're fungible as in everyone is equally interchangeable with the other. A non-fungible token is a unique token and that's what was created in that hackathon in the summer of 2017 for the purpose of creating a game called CryptoKitties, which was a game where you where you collected cute cats and you could breed your cats and play with other people. It was a very simple game. And it's a it's a sort of a Tamagotchi style collecting and nurturing and breeding mechanism. <clears throat> and 
it was originally conceived kind of as an experiment, you know, by a bunch of people who were crypto enthusiasts um, thinking what would happen if we tried to make a game using this technology that everybody else has been trying to make financial applications with for so many years. Um, so it was kind of a what if scenario. And, you know, like the mad scientists in the lab who come up with the formula for Coca-Cola or whatever it is, they came up with this idea of a non-fungible token. NFT. Yes, exactly. And this is what has impart for the entire entertainment business. And of course, sports is part of entertainment. Um, <clears throat> once the NFT was created, it gave us the ability to essentially offer secure digital rights management. And digital rights management or DRM is a problem that has plagued the internet for the last, you know, 30 years. Because the idea is that in Web 1 and Web 2, because now you're talking about Web 3, in the first two generations of the internet, and let's largely bunch them into, you know, 1990s and then the 2000s for Web 1 and 2, respectively, um, all content was essentially kind of linear. You'd go to the internet and you download stuff. You download text, you download images, you download voice or video, but none of it that resided on the internet had any value per se because it was all infinitely copyable and distributable and shareable. And part of that was the magic of the internet, but it also created a problem because what happened if you were a musician and you wanted to sell your songs online? How do, you, how do people buy downloads when everybody can copy them? You know? and, and we've tried all different kinds of things. Napster came along and disrupted. You know, Apple tried to build a closed system with iTunes. And eventually we all settled for streaming services. So now everybody has you know, Spotify and Netflix and YouTube and the streaming services, which are the, the children of Web2, um, these centralized services exist because we can't actually control digital rights management because mm -hmm. there's no secure way to secure digital files. So blockchain changes that. And fundamentally, Web3 is about the idea that we now have, through blockchain, a secure underpinning to the internet that allows us to exchange value from person to person. And that value can be content, it can be currency, as in cryptocurrency, so digital assets. So digital assets can take any form. They can be a picture, they can be a, you know, like a Bitcoin, which is a pseudo currency, or it could be an image, it could be a playable item inside a game. All of those are digital assets because any one of those things can be tokenized on a blockchain as an NFT. And so fundamentally, what we're talking about is the idea of being able to create digital property rights. Because once you hold these tokens, you can own them, you possess them, and then they're worth something because you can trade them with somebody else because nobody else can copy an NFT. Once it's on the internet, everybody knows on the blockchain who owns it? That record of that record of ownership is absolute. <clears throat> and that's a very key part of this because we've solved the digital rights management puzzle. Um, and so as a result, many industries that have had to have workarounds for the last 10 years, like streaming platforms, you know, as a workaround yep. for digital rights management, those are no longer necessary. You now have an environment which we kind of, you know, when I was in my 20s back in the 90s, I dreamed of where you could have a site where, you know, music acts could sell their music directly to fans in incremental pieces. Well, now thanks to blockchain, you can do that because people can't copy, you know, buy one, one album worth and then copy it and give it to their friends for free. It doesn't work. It's, it's secure. So that's very interesting. And I think what a lot of the discussion over the last year has been around is what are the implications that this is going to have for how we consume entertainment content on the internet what happens when not only can you start to um, secure these property rights and therefore enable content to be sold piece by piece in a secure fashion, but more importantly, what does it mean for the creators of content when, you know, what it means today to be a YouTuber is, yes, you can make money, but only once you have at least 10 million subscribers. And in that case, you know, really the, the, the pie of the, sorry, the pyramid of people who make a living on, on YouTube um, is a very, very sharp pyramid mm -hmm. with the people at the top making extraordinary sums of money. But the base of that pyramid is very broad where not many people make much of anything. Um, and music streaming services are the same where you hear a lot of artists complaining about, you know, the relatively low income stream they make from streaming. 
But now with blockchain, content creators have a mechanism um, and, a, and a payment methodology that allows them to monetize their content directly to consumers. And so when you think about being able to create that direct con to consumer broadcast and monetization channel, that has implications throughout entertainment because what it means is you can engage directly with your fans, not only in a promotional fashion, but in an economic fashion where you can earn revenue. And it also has implications for all the people who have been between the fan and the artist, um, helping them to enable that relationship because what happens to all those people in the middle when that relationship can become direct? That's super interesting. Uh, makes me think of, uh, if you just kind of zoom out a little bit and think about the digital world where we're spending more and more time, right? And there's a saying that time is money and value of some kind. You're, you're, you're providing value to the place that where you're spending time. And I'm thinking about everything that you own in your house. It'd be weird if, if you know, something small that isn't very valuable and would sit in a flea market if I didn't own that in the real world even if it's something that isn't very valuable yes. all the way up to my, you know, my, my most expensive sort of, you know, painting or whatever that I have on the wall, like a collective piece, really. Uh, why do you think it's so hard for, for, for folks to get their heads around, to wrap their heads around, like why, you know, why that is just a natural evolution of things, you know, that you own things in the digital world. And hmm. it's just, uh, you know, how it should be because we're spending increasingly more time there. Right. Yes. I think, um, a great example would be, um, Take Germany. In Germany, mm. up until 20 years ago, it was customary for most people to rent their home. And the idea of home ownership really never took off in Germany for many reasons that far smarter people than I are, you know, um, understand during the post-war period, et cetera. So their home ownership was just not something Germans did. And they didn't see they didn't see a point for it because everybody rents. That's what the entire mm. country does. And so you don't know any different when you only have one system of operating and you make it work for you. You know, anybody mm -hmm. who's ever renovated a home, you know, we, we renovated recently. I learned the difference between German kitchens and other types of kitchens is that you can actually, they're so modular that you can remove them and take them with you when you move house. Because mm -hmm. in Germany, where people rent, they take their kitchens with them from house to house. Right. And that's not something that, you know, here in the UK where I live, people would ever think of doing. Uh, it, you know, it's a, a kitchen is seen as something that's fixed to your house. But it's because of the idea of home ownership. So in the early 2000s, the idea of home ownership started to catch on. And I think people really changed their mindset. Uh, you know, Germans changed their mindset about what mm. the implications are of owning a home. Um, but before that, it hadn't occurred to them. They didn't see anything mm. wrong with the way that they were operating before that. And I think when we think about digital property rights, it's the same thing. We've been lulled into thinking that digital, uh, digital items on the internet have no value. But ask anybody who's a journalist, for example, what they think of that opinion that, you know, the newspaper should be free online. <laughs> you know, it's been, a, yeah, yeah. It's been a, basically a problem that has been unable to be solved for so long that we've almost decided that what they do is no longer valuable, which is, of course, patently That's a great false. point. That's a great right? point. Right. Robbie, um, you know, I think this, I know a lot of people that have come to me and saying, you know, I've read a couple of books in the blockchain and I still don't get it. And I think the way you've put it there is so, so easy to understand. In Web2, uh, it was very difficult to get paid for anything online. The blockchain changes that. It is the mm -hmm. plumbing, it is the infrastructure that allows transactions and ownership to be very, very clear. So for the last part of that now, tell us a little bit then what the metaverse or metaverses are. Sure. So the metaverse, the term was originally coined um, in a book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which came out um, in my formative years when I was in my mid-20s thinking about starting a business on the internet. So it was perfect timing to brainwash me at the time. Um, and the, the idea of the metaverse was an online space that we all share and essentially live a great extent of our lives in. And I think that, um, you know, it's been immortalized in science fiction. Ready Player One is often an example cited for, for a metaverse or the, the Matrix, if you want to take a slightly more sinister spin on it. Um, and it's the idea that you're going to be spending a lot of your time online. 
So until now, we haven't really used this term um, because what we do on the internet has been very compartmentalized. You go to the internet for your social media or maybe to watch YouTube. You know, you have a particular function, but it's not like you necessarily feel yourself spending the majority of your day online, even though if we counted the hours, most of us probably do. Um, but I think what changes it now is that the, on, um, the online world has been primarily a world of consumption until now. And because blockchain enables that um, financial underpinning to the internet, um, now it means that our time online can also be time spent earning a living. Um, and so once you consider yourself able to work online, and, I, and when I say work online, meaning be somebody who services clients across the internet and gets paid through the internet, et cetera, everything through that terminal, not my boss asks me to work from home and I just do mm. stuff on Microsoft Excel. Um, so because you can engage online directly and all you need to engage in that world is your computer, um, you can basically now live your whole life through the internet um, because you can get an income and your entertainment and all the aspects of your life. So that is loosely what we call the metaverse. It's this, you know, this world where you spend your time and can do all the things that involve, you know, your life. Um, that's not the physical world. Um, some people view, have a sort of an extreme view of the metaverse, meaning it needs to be 3d and you have to have VR goggles and it's mm -hmm. completely virtual reality. Um, I think we take a more sanguine view. The idea of the metaverse is just places that you spend a lot of time online together. And we can see many successful examples already in entertainment over time. So a couple of years ago, you know, anybody who has kids who are now still teenagers or younger will have remembered Fortnite, you know, and games like Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox not to mention YouTube and TikTok in general, consume the hours of young people around the world. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that that's where they live their lives very often when you meet young people these days. And it's because these are online spaces where they socialize. Now, the difference between these and what we're calling the metaverse underpinned by blockchain is that those spaces are closed. They are spaces that are designed by a single centralized platform. So... YouTube, for example, or, you know, Roblox, and they're subject to all of the rules of the software developer slash owner, and it's a closed system. So therefore, you know, what you do in there, if there is an economy, for example, in there where you can buy and sell things, it can only be done um, in the manner that's permitted by the software developer. You can't take anything out of it, for example. So Roblox, you know, you can build creations and earn Robux and transact inside the platform, but everything is subject to paying fees to the developer and it all must stay inside the software platform. The metaverse that we're talking about with blockchain is open and it's open and the entire world can share and interoperate with the metaverse, meaning I can build a metaverse, like in my company, we have a prominent one called the Sandbox, yep. for example, and you can build cool stuff and spend all your time in the sandbox. But importantly, if you want, you can take the stuff you make in the sandbox out and you can take it somewhere else into a different metaverse or to a different marketplace to sell to other people. So it's not restricted in one single environment where the developer of that environment extracts the majority of the value. In the blockchain world, we build platforms where the value is exchanged from user to user. And so as a result, the GDP of that metaverse is much, much bigger because 95% of the value is exchanged peer to peer between the participants, between the audience. And it's not for my benefit as the software developer. I just take a fee for providing the platform, but the platform grows much bigger because I'm not extracting all the value off the top. Yeah, I think that's super cool. It makes me think of, you know, this summer, I think in May, I, I sort of dipped my toe in the water and had my family, I have kids here too, and they're playing a lot of Fortnite for sure. And, they, and they're buying a lot of skins and all kinds of shit in, in Fortnite, right? But um, I came across Axie Infinity and I, I, you know, we got ourselves a few NFTs, a few Axies and started playing. And that kind of spread in the family. I have uh, five boys, so a lot of boys here and they're all gamers. And one morning I came up in the kitchen and I saw that everybody was like just 
you know, looking at their, you know, screens and they were just playing in a different way. I was like, there's a different vibe in the room, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I'm not blowing sunshine up your, you know, behind <laughs> here, Robbie, but they were playing Axie and they were excited. So kind of on that note, what do you, what do you think happens to the player, uh, you know, to, you know, to the person that's playing mm -hmm. when you're, you're, you're sort of, or whatever you're doing, you know, on the blockchain that is, you know, where you have ownership. Yes. What do you think happens yes. to the person uh, and kind of the engagement that person sort of feels? So the engagement is tremendous because I think we're engaged in anything where we feel a sense of ownership more than we are when, when we don't feel that sense of ownership. And I think that's true uh, across the, you know, spectrum of the kind of content that we create. Um, right. No, that's exactly what I saw in their eyes. Like I saw, it was just different engagement. And yeah. like, makes me think of like, you know, my, my youngest son, Eric, he's, he's the best Fortnite player in, this, in his school. And he's in mm -hmm. a big school. I'm just thinking about all, all the time that he spent, probably four, four hours a day on a weekend, maybe more, um, to be honest, probably a lot more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, you know, Angry Birds that I played and, you know, all the games that we played, if there was a different way of doing it uh, as opposed to how we did it, it would just change the game for me. I mean, on, on, a, on an emotional level, I would say. Yes, Do you agree definitely. with that? Well, and also games have changed because in the last 20 years, games have become economic environments, meaning when part of the fun of playing the game is upgrading your characters and customizing your characters and building right. things and creating things. You know, when I played games as a kid, games were just simply, you know, uh, you a single player thing where you play against the computer and it's all fixed. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, games have become much more complicated and, and rich environments. Robbie, um, Robbie how big is that industry compared to sport? Let, let's put some context onto this because sometimes sure. I think sport, you know, um, gets up its own behind and thinks mm -hmm. it's super important because, you know, sport um, for our generation has got iconic moments. But in terms of industries, how big is sure. gaming compared to, to my industry? Um, so gaming globally is about $200 billion a year in revenue, um, although I think that's poised to grow quite a bit. Um, it's growing right now at about 20% a year. Um, but like here in the UK, it's probably twice the size of football, um, mm. if that makes sense. Um, it does, it and does. And that's just UK gaming. Right, but, but also, Robbie, I mean, thanks to the blockchain and kind of the open meta metaverse and that approach, isn't it a lot easier to, you know, for kind of smart contracts or, you know, different protocols to interact one, with one another? And that's kind of yes. how games can get, just move a lot closer to, to sports and, and vice versa, right? Yes. And, and it's all entertainment. And I think, you know, I think we have to evolve our idea of what it means to be a game. The reason that the metaverse is being largely built by game companies is because we have the kind of talent pool that is good at developing these types of 3D environments just because games, you know, we've been doing that in games for years. And so the kind of artists and illustrators and programmers required to do it happen to work at game companies. So we're a natural home for being architects of these kind of environments. But it doesn't mean that all of them are going to be strictly for entertainment. Some of them may be for e-commerce. Some of them may be for online banking. Some of them may be for, you know, live streaming of sports events. Um, and so, you know, I think the beauty of it is that being in the creation of blockchain and NFT content business right now is very much like, you know, being building websites in the mid 90s. People people would say, well, what, what do I need a website for? What do you do with a website? Well, you know, now that we've done it for a while, you can think there's no one thing a website does just like you know, with uh, with NFTs, you could do many things. There's just not one thing that you do with it. Robbie, let's keep on this track a little bit because, you know, sport has uh, approached this new world and its first reaction, I think, has been relatively negative. We've mm -hmm. seen uh, obvious um, sponsorship deals uh, and, and the kind of like old style, you know, crypto is the new betting company sponsorship. We've seen socios, tokens, where the utility has been dreadfully underwhelming. Um, we've also seen some sponsorships in the NFT world that have ended up uh, being quite embarrassing for the rights holders, I think, Barcelona and, and Man City. Um, however, however, 
Um, what would you say to people that think this is some kind of flash in the pan, uh, sure. the, the, lat the latest little widget that's going to um, do something versus engagement? What, what is the answer to the skeptics around the uh, direction of travel? So I would say, firstly, I mean, um, I don't know when the sports industry has ever been upset that new kinds of companies would come and sponsor because I, I believe the sure. sports industry really likes sponsorship, yep. as far as I can tell. Um, 100%. And, 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 <laughs> I think, and I think, you know, people said that 20 years ago, ago about Chinese companies beginning to come and sponsor, um, you know, sports leagues in Western countries um, because there is viewership in China. Well, I, I don't think that's actually slowed down much, much at all um, 20 years on. Um, so I think, you know, coming and participating in sports as a traditional sponsor and advertising medium is a natural home for emerging growth industries um, because they're always looking to grow their customer bases. I think that um, initial projects in the area of sports franchises starting to embrace um, Web3 um, you know, have been met with mixed results because there are as many different ways to approach it as conclusions we can draw about whether they were successful or not. Um, and I think there are more thoughtful executions and there are less thoughtful executions. Um, and I think it's, unfortunately, when it comes to entertainment content, it's always subjective. It's a bit like saying, well, you know, that, that restaurant was good, but this restaurant is no good and it's a matter of taste. Um, I right. think one of the things that I try to caution um, you know, our partners, because we obviously license a lot of IP from, from sports leagues and clubs and things like that, um, is I try to impress upon them what I feel like is the gravity of the situation, because this is a change in how we talk to our customers and our audiences and the world. And this change is happening. Um, and we can argue about how quickly it will happen, but it's, uh, in my opinion, inevitably occurring. And so I think we need to adapt to this change and figure out how to embrace it. But we also need to take a, an approach and a thoughtfulness to it that assumes that this is a, you know, let's call it a 10-year cycle, um, maybe more. And so, you know, I think the last thing you want to do is to try to build a strategy that involves, you know, trying to get as much... Uh, money off the table as quickly as possible. Um, because, you know, if you put a product out there and keep in mind, what we talk about on blockchain is permanence, meaning digital permanence. You create an NFT and NFT should be forever. And so if you think about what that means, you know, in the term, in the frame of online reputation, let's call it, um, you know, people are going to see what you do for a very, very long time. And so mm -hmm. when you think about the reputation of your brand, you want to make sure that the product that you put out there is something that 10 years down the line, you're still going to be happy that you did when you look back at it um, and that it mm -hmm. faithfully reflects your brand. And I think that's important. Um, and that, you know, short-term gain for a few extra dollars off the table may not be worth, you know, sacrificing some of that brand equity. So let, let's, Johan, let me ask you this then. And uh, let's specifically deal with the issue of tokens, the ones that have been around with socials. And I don't want to single them out, but it's the easiest example to, to bring out to people. This famous word, utility. Um, you know, uh, whether you call it play to earn or utility, uh, what you get uh, with an NFT that's not just the asset value. Um, give us an idea, Johan, about what you're seeing and, and what you're doing about how you do utility well and how you do it badly. Oh, I mean, where do I start? There's so many ways of, of providing utility, I would say. But, um, but, but you know, I just want to say this. Uh, regarding the previous question, before I get to this question, there, there's been some incredible things done by FTX where they've been airdropping NFTs to fans that are in the arena in Miami, right? And those NFTs are free, but they're a start of like a, like a Web3 Facebook group. And that group can come together in a community and provide a lot of value. And when they do so, instead of being in a Facebook group, which it used to be, you know, you can build critical mass in a Facebook group and that sort of thing. And, and you can have influence. But in this case, they would actually have influence and ownership, which come, you know, completely changes the incentive model here. I, I think that's important. And then we haven't even started to see, in my view, kind of the innovations and the inventions that we will see 
I think the start of it, like in the sports, um, you know, space was the, the, the latest guy, uh, things that you guys were involved in and uh, Robbie with uh, the fan controlled football stuff yeah. where mm -hmm. yeah. you have a couple of NFT, you know, communities, they came from, you know, out of nothing as, you know, just like companies, like startups, they start somewhere, there's a one line of code and then there's two and then there's three and four or five. And all of a sudden you, 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 you have a community getting excited about a future together, right? And then you build critical mass, not everyone. Not all start, startups will do that either, right? Not every game will work, but some, some of them do. And the exciting thing about on the utility side with you know, something like that is the composability, I think. And again, like we'll see a lot of inventions going forward that we haven't seen yet. But one example is how you can you know, build on top of an exist, existing NFT by essentially like pairing things together, like an NFT with a protocol, like a DeFi protocol or anything else. Smart contracts interacting with one another. I, I, that's get gets kind of a little technical, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Decentralized finance. Tell us a little bit about fan-controlled football and how that sure. works right. in, in reality. Sure. The idea behind fan-controlled football was a little bit crazy at first, um, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a blend of of reality, physical reality, and gaming. So um, right. what what fan control football has done, um, and this is a business in the U.S., is they have created their own. Um, American Football League. Um, so they've basically, they started out by creating several teams that would play against each other, um, you know, and have physical, you know, football games. But the mm. idea was that they would bring online communities of fans together and the fans would participate in real time to impact the outcome of the game. And this is this has also been tried with with social tokens, fan tokens, and stuff um, in other yeah. contexts of existing of existing sports leagues. But in this case, the league was actually the the you know the tail of the dog, if you will, because the idea was the online community of fans mm. was first, and the league right. was created for their benefit. So the players play. And the and and the fans who are controlling the football vote on each and every play that happens in the game. So there is a small window of time in between each plays, mm -hmm. in between each play, so that the fans can participate. So that the fans are actually the armchair quarterbacks or the uh, mm. or the you know the home football managers, if you will. Um, and it's really exciting because it's an opportunity for fans to engage in a sport they love in a totally different way. Um, but it's being done with teams that are being created from scratch as opposed yeah. to sort of the historical, you know, teams where you have, you know, alliances that are passed down from father to son or mother to daughter over time. Um, right. And so I think the idea of having this extension of physical sport with hmm. online viewership and now you know as the business grows there's going to be physical viewership where people will actually go to a stadium and watch them play as opposed hmm. to you know when it started out it was being done in a warehouse with green screens and special motion capture suits yeah. um, for the benefit of the online audience so now we can actually do all of the above and that's tremendously exciting because as big as sports has been historically, the reach of sports has been the, res the result of televised entertainment. Um, right. But how do you bring sports into a fully interactive 3D online world? Mm. Because if you compare, you know, the linear television model that's, you know, Roger, people like all of us grew yeah. up on watching where you just sit down for two hours and watch sports. Um, mm. That's very different to what all of our kids experience in places like Fortnite or yeah. even sports games, you know, even Madden NFL or, or, you know, FIFA, whatever they're playing on their PlayStation and Xbox. That's actually a very immersive experience compared to watching mm. television, which is why young people tend to choose those interactive entertainment options rather than television. This sports industry of mine has been talking about engagement and interaction, I think, um, for about five, six years now. Um, and then I read something from your world, um, the, the Reddit guy, what's his name? Alexis Ohanian, mm -hmm. that he says that unless you're actually rewarding these kids for their time, you're not going to have any kind of activity going forward. Explain to us a little bit play to earn and how that changes everything sure. for our world, our world of engagement. 
Sure. I think um, Web 2 has largely been built um, on, uh, you know, it largely consists of centralized streaming and social media platforms. So the majority of our consumption of online entertainment for the last decade has been through platforms like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Spotify and Netflix. And the, you know, with the exception of the, some of the subscription services, the business models of the so-called free services have been exploiting us, the public, for the benefit of advertising. So we have basically, you know, been turned into data mining. And mm. the thing is that what Web3 and blockchain does is it basically looks at this, um, this hierarchy and says, well, what would happen if we, the public, actually had control over our own data and our ability to monetize that data? So, you know, here's a great example. There's a blockchain project called, um, there's a web browser called Brave, which mm -hmm. uses blockchain. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind Brave is that you don't get any advertisements in the browser unless you agree to them. And if you agree to them, the advertisers pay you to look at those ads. Um, yeah. And so you can decide what type of experience you want, because if you're going to give of your time, you should be compensated for it. And it's a very powerful principle because it's not a crazy one. It's one we employ every mm. single day when we go to work, which is right. you spend your time at work and you should be paid for it. But then right. why is it that you go home and spend four hours on Facebook and, you know, and give Mark Zuckerberg money as opposed to getting anything right. for yourself? But also with Brave, you're you're opting into sharing your personal data too. You can, you know, you sh it should that be that freedom of choice, right? Yes. If you want to opt in to be, you know, exposed to ads and stuff like that, that that should be your choice. Really. Yes. And, and, and if you do, exactly. you're getting paid. And, right? and you should either get paid or you should get some kind of content in exchange for that personal mm -hmm. data. Right. But at the moment, your personal data is basically not valued by anyone um, except for the advertisers who pay the platform that aggregates it from you, who basically steal your data. Yeah. And, and on that point, that's even, that is actually quite disastrous for, for creators because we've heard over the last years that some creators are, you know, they're, hitting, they're not hitting the right critical mass to get paid. They're being demonetized for various reasons. And, you know, that's because you have no control of your digital rights. Yes. Absolutely. Even for even for people at that scale, really, that happened a lot of times. Robbie, what you were saying there about how that changes the the economics of engagement is is devastating. Mm -hmm. It's devastating for our industry, but more importantly, and this is where I want to come back to the the thing you said at the start about open versus walled gardens. You know. Mm -hmm. um, for the last 15 years, the whole entertainment industry and the ad industry, and hence the marketing industry, has been dominated by two gorillas called uh, Facebook and Google. Um, mm -hmm. What you described earlier, which is um, disintermediation through the blockchain, um, is utterly existential for them and their business models. Uh, yes. Do you think people understand this? In that context of that question, explain to us why he's changed the name to Meta. How do you see all <laughs> that? Sure. Um, because I think the object of Facebook is, and, and you know, to put this in context, people often ask us, particularly investors, ask us who are our major competitors. And I say to them that we don't really have any, which is not a point of arrogance, but it's a point to illustrate that in the blockchain community, we view all of ourselves as partners because it's an open platform environment. So it's in everybody's interest to work with everybody else because the more we work together, the more we all benefit. Um, I'll, maybe I can use a quick political economic analogy. So when, when China joined the World Trade Organization 20, 25 years ago, Everybody said, oh, well, you know, this is going to be really great for China because they're going to get access to the world market and they're going to, you know, make all this money. But actually what happened was it was really good for the world because all of a sudden we got things produced at lower cost. We got a big market for consumer goods that we never had before. And so what happened was actually the whole world benefited, not just China, but the world and China benefited. So there is actually um, very, very tangible, you know, evidence of this benefit to openness. And so in the blockchain community, we really push this idea that it's all about being open and interconnected. 
And so when people ask about competition, I say our competition is Facebook because Facebook very much wants to keep this closed because they benefit from the closed structure. And so the reason they changed their name to Meta is because what they will do is they will come out with um, their own version of the blockchain and the metaverse. And they will tell everybody that this is going to be the best version. And so you should use this one. But I think if you read the fine print, you will find that regardless of what they say about openness, it will not be quite as open uh, as what your and my definition of open really is. Um, and that's because they need to try to control the environment because that's how they extract their value from the users. Because if users can come and go and, and monetize their own time and attention, then Facebook loses their business model fundamentally. Wow, Johan, I want to I want to ask you about this because um, I think I think this is the crux of everything and why people are so wrong to think this is a little bit of a flash in the pan, pump and dump, you know, fad of the month. Um, what we are talking about here is is as I said before, an existential battle for um, Gen Z. Uh, sport definitely has a Gen Z problem. Uh, it doesn't realize it. It's uh, fanning around around the outsides. Um, it doesn't understand why kids are spending so much money on things you've told me about, Johan, digital goods, uh, virtual props, all that kind of stuff. How, how do you see all of this affecting the world of creators that can then feed right into sport? I'm talking about fans uh, getting together uh, to do a, a sports bar on some, one of the metaverses and, and, and minting some NFTs to get that paid for. That's what I call, in my mind, why this is called the Renaissance podcast. It's like the Medici um, um, financing the Renaissance. Uh, tell us a little bit in your vision how all that Robbie's talking about changes the whole world for sports content. In, in so many ways, honestly. Um, it's really a vehicle for sort of evolve the global culture, essentially. And then, and, I mean, hanging out in a lot of Twitter spaces and Discord groups where, you know, I'm talking to other, you know, NFT holders and in, in different communities, really. This is a way to bring, you know, a global sports fan base together and and also to evolve the culture around, you know, whether it's a club or a team or a league and essentially creating, you know, culturally a much higher understanding between, you know, global sports fans. And I think that's a beautiful thing to start with. And it's been one of the issues for, for, for sports in a long time to sort of, you know, having different regional sort of strategies for reaching people over there and over here and kind of, wouldn't it be better if you had one global fan base where you sort of culturally are bringing the sports fan closer to one another around a topic that everybody's excited about. I think that's, you know, if you look at humanity and like the human race and how we evolve, I think that's an awesome thing just in itself. Put this into NFT terms. So um, let, let's just make a simple example. Let's say that this podcast was actually much bigger than it is. And I decided that this little series here I was going to make into NFTs. I was going to mint them. I was going to sell them. Uh, the utility part of it would be that people would get to come on or they would get to ask the guests some questions. Because I think people don't understand this stuff about NFTs. They see the South Park videos, they see the JPEGs, and they say, this is ridiculous. I instead believe it is some form of modern crowdfunding that not only allows people to pay for stuff, but actually gives us some benefits. Am I on the right track there, Robbie? Let me give you a simple example. Um, so eSports. Esports has, for the last decade or so, been the idea of people who make a living playing video games. But ask yourself, how is it that they make a living? They make a living largely through sponsorship. So if you play a game and it's a very popular game and you're better than a million other people at it in the world, or 20 million people, um, then you can get a sponsor and make money. Um, but what does it take to get a sponsor, right? It probably means that you have to speak English. It probably means that you have to live in a big city potentially or have an agent or have access to a network that allows you to obtain that sponsorship. Maybe you have to have a lawyer to sign a contract. Now, if you play one of our games 
say F1 Delta time, for example, right? We have races every week and you can win prize money in the game. And on average, I'd say that's anywhere from 10 to 15,000 US dollars a week. And how do you get that money? You just have to be fastest around the track. And then what happens? You get paid in rev tokens, the in-game currency of the game, into your wallet, right on your desktop computer, and that's it. You've made your money. You don't have to be in the same physical space as anyone. You don't have to find a sponsor. You just have to show up to the race and be the fastest around the track. And, and you can live in Timbuktu in the middle of you know, the forest or, or wherever. It doesn't matter. So it actually levels the playing field for access to commerce and you know, to entertainment in a way that's never been seen before. Um, and I think that's the powerful part about it. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks to Web2, I mean, a lot of big brands and creators and personal brands have built a critical mass with regards to marketing, right? So they have marketing outlets, whether it's a musician on SoundCloud or, you know, whether it's a, you know, you know, a creator, whatever, you know, whatever industry they're kind of stuff they're, you know, content they're putting out there, they may have a YouTube channel, and Instagram, et cetera, right? So they already have a marketing platform and a voice. Problem is they have not controlled or, you know, owned the relationship with the community. That has been a huge problem. So they had to sort of put their name on a lipstick brand or start some, you know, energy drink or, you know, do the usual suspect kind of suspect kind of sponsorship thing. But in this case, just because of the the fact that you know cash can be held by a you know by a machine, the you know the, the the cash is built into the activity itself. So it allows you to actually agree with your community, issue a number of NFTs, and share the revenues if that community or that content strand that you're putting out that is tied to that NFT collection is successful. Everybody benefits, and you don't have to take the detour around you know, to the sponsorship side, because it's all built into the activity so, so, itself. So ultimately, whether you believe in the mechanism or you understand the mechanism, sorry, better, you know, uh, decentralized finance, DeFi and blockchain, whether you understand mm -hmm. all of that, what this comes down to basically is the new way to engage and monetize your community and taking out all the intermediaries. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean... Definitely. I mean, because time is money and we're spending a lot of time in, in games or, you know, being sports fans. Why should you not be paid for that? Let's call it contribution, labor, work, whatever it is, right? No, no. I think I, I first of all, I agree with that completely. And let's put it into the context of your podcast because we want to help you make more money from your podcast, right? So if you think about your podcast, you could issue tokens as memberships to the podcast. Maybe, maybe you make it an invite only. So you can have a public podcast and then you can have special exclusive sessions where you, you know, speak to famous athletes or whoever, you know, and people can subscribe to that. And so how do they subscribe? You issue NFTs in, you know, a limited edition of 100 or something like that, and people collect them. And you can also say to people, well, if you own more than one NFT, then not only do you get to listen to the special podcasts, but you get to ask questions. And you can authenticate all that. If you own more than 10 NFTs, you can come on the show and talk to them yourself in, in real life, in physical person, right? And, and the thing about them is those NFTs, as you keep adding value and utility to them, to that community, then, well, people will want to own them. That's the fundamental idea. And anything people want to own tends to go up in value. And the thing is that it's transferable. That's the most important part. It goes up in value because if I, you know, hang on and join Roger's community and I listen to all this great content, but then I get bored because, you know, I have a baby, I don't have time for sports, I have to do other things, I can, I can sell it to somebody else who's a fan. And that flexibility of ownership is key. Yeah, well, let me push on on this a little bit, again, with sport. So as, as a means to crowdfund content and offer utility to fans, we've just explained that. But let's talk about ownership. You know, um, sport has got this thing about, oh, it's owned by the fans, big finance, they, they don't get us. It's terrible that they own it. So I look at um, DAOs, DAOs, as a way where ultimately this community through this new technology, Web3, 
can actually be the owners. I, I want you to spend, Robbie, two or three minutes and tell us sure. how the the blockchain uh, generates a, a DAO and how that takes ownership of, let's call it, Exeter City Football Club. Okay. Don't know much about Exeter Doesn't City matter. Football Club, but I can tell you about DAOs. Yeah. Um, so, because um, I've, I've, I've lived in the UK long enough to know don't pick a team and don't pick a side. It's safer. You're right. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, so DAOs are stands for decentralized autonomous organization. It sounds really fancy, but all it means is a bunch of people own a token. And the idea is you create a token for a purpose to create a community. And usually they bond over a particular thing. So for example, um, you know, there's a... Um, they can decide that they want to buy an artwork, right? Um, there was a there was a um, famous case of some uh, some artwork being bought by um, by a DAO, where essentially they wanted to bid in a Christie's or a Sotheby's auction on something on a physical artwork, and so they created a DAO to basically fractionalize the ownership yeah. of that mm -hmm. item amongst the members of the DAO. Yeah, that that was a Banksy one, wasn't it? Exactly. Right. And so what they wanted to do was fractionalize the ownership. And what happens is that those everybody who owns tokens in that DAO has a say in it and a vote um, as a result of that token ownership. And the idea is that the rules are all laid out in advance. Everybody has, you know, a white paper and a smart contract that is their constitution of the DAO that says, this is what we're going to do. And this is what owning a token gives you the power to vote on. And also they have a governance they have a governance um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, structure built in, just like, mm. you know, think of a, a board of directors yeah, of a corporation. Agreement. It's like a shareholders agreement. Exactly. And so that's all built into the DAO. And the idea is that this is encoded in software. So it all happens automatically. And so it enables basically a way to organize online a group of people in a shared interest. And so whether they're buying a Banksy or they're buying a football club or they're buying, uh, you know, the contract of a player. It, who knows? Mm. They can do whatever they want because this is just <laughs> a mechanism by which you can, you can securely organize a group of people. Now, I know of DAOs that, you know, have budgets of hundreds of millions of US dollar equivalent. And I think you can get a pretty good premiership player for that. That's just mm. astonishing. I think if you open your mind to this stuff, it is devastating, and and that's why it really quite annoys me that people talk about, oh, it's just another widget, or it's just another pump and dump. But let's come on to valuation because I think this mm -hmm. is your your biggest threat just now. You know, you've talked, Robbie, very clearly about you know basically going after the big gorillas. Maybe not going after them, but they are in your way. Let's say they're in your way. You're playing a big game, Robbie. Um, mm -hmm. Here's what I think. Uh, you, the valuations in NFTs and the way they go through the roof gives people the idea that this is some kind of pump and dump uh, scheme. And I think that weakens your case. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll give you another element to this that is really close to home for you. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Animoca Brands is, valued, is valued about uh, two, $2 billion, which, by the way, congratulations. Anybody that Thank thinks we're talking about a uh, chunk change here needs to just think about that. That's with a B, $2 billion. But here's the really interesting thing, man. Riddle me this, Batman. The value of the stakes you've got in the players uh, in the ecosystem from OpenSea to Dapper Labs, everything like that, that has got a valuation of about 16 billion. 16 billion. So so what, what I'm saying is with these two examples, NFTs that go through the roof, even your own mismatching of value is it sounds to normal folk on the top of the Clapham omnibus, there's something wrong. We're no longer in Kansas, and that scares people. Sure. I think it just reflects people being conservative because what happens is that, you know, when you look at what's happened in the blockchain world over the last decade, but particularly the last several years, there's a lot of volatility, right? Because there's enthusiasm, there's excitement, there's new technology. There are so many new people coming into the ecosystem. Don't forget that when the web and the internet started, it was largely an English language phenomenon, which means that it was largely participated in by countries of, you know, the US and the UK and English speaking countries. Now, blockchain is different. 
blockchain, because it democratizes access, you literally have the entire world working on blockchain. I meet African entrepreneurs, I meet entrepreneurs from, you know, Russia and Ukraine and literally every corner of the globe, you find great blockchain developers because all you need is a computer. Yeah. Um, you don't need a, you don't need, you know, venture capital from Silicon Valley, which was what the last two generations of tech really were fueled yeah. on. Um, and so because of this, you know, you mentioned earlier that we have big ambitions to take on Facebook. We are not taking on Facebook. We, the entire Web3 industry is taking on Facebook. Of course. So it's a bit it's a bit like saying democracy versus you know feudalism, um, and so I think in the in that case it's a slightly more fair fight um, because mm. it's not the idea of one company trying to topple another. It's it's the world. Uh, but Robbie, I, I believe that you are going to do this. I I, I believe that this isn't uh, a flash in the pan. I believe this is a seminal moment, not just for sport but for everything. But come back to the valuation thing. I mean, I'm a finance guy. I'm an economist. And if things are going up 60 times in 24 hours, it means somebody's got the pricing wrong or there's something that's not working in the mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mm -hmm. hurting you. I, I, I think that when we get a, what I would call a more efficient market, to use a classic corporate finance term, you know, let, let me put mm -hmm. it another way, man. You know, like if I spoke to two or three Wall Street guys, I would say, let's go and take out Animoca because it will cost us $3 billion and they're sitting on $16 billion of value. What am I missing here, Robbie? You're not. You're welcome to write a check. You'll sell for $3 billion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but I think I think I think it's a point, you know, to go to the finance term. It's a it's a matter of liquidity and market size. So it's it's well known that within the blockchain world, there are only a handful of blockchain wallets participating in this new Web three universe. You know, there's probably uh, Johan probably has a better number than me, but I I was going to say three or four million wallets, maybe five. Um, I think it's a little more. Is it more? Mm, okay. I think so. But anyway, we're talking about single-digit millions participating in this world right now. Um, I think what has attracted attention is that the GDP of that metaverse of, call it, sub-10 million people is enormous. So, you know, you have games like Axie Infinity doing $2.5 billion of trading huge, in a month. Huge revenues. Right? Huge revenues. And, and the reason it does that is because it's all traded back and forth between the players. It's different from a traditional software platform where, you know, 30% or 50% comes straight off the top and goes into the pocket of the software developer. This is just the software developer taking a small fee to provide the platform. So it's, it's about, the industry is not about building corporate revenue, it's about building um, platform GDP. And then we as the platform providers inevitably benefit from a very, very small percentage of that overall GDP growth. Right. So you're basically saying that all these issues around valuation spikes, um, you know, the South Park videos, everybody has a laugh, everybody shares it. You're basically saying this is an issue of liquidity that, um, mm -hmm. uh, right. So I'm thinking here, liquidity gets solved. It always gets solved. And yes, I, I, by more greater user adoption. And I'm thinking, fuck me. If, I, I mean, that means that um, when it gets solved, there is going to be a massive uplift in valuations. Yes, there should be. And this is why you have people who are Bitcoin maximalists who are, you know, holding for Bitcoin to be worth millions of dollars, which who knows? I mean, I'm not here to make invest, give investment advice. That's far oh, no, from it. Sure. I think what's I think what's very very exciting though is the idea that you can consume entertainment and own value in the process. Just like, you know, and and this is where I'm going to show my age. You know, when I started consuming entertainment, you always had to buy it on a physical medium and you owned it. Yeah. Whether it was an album yeah. or a cassette or a CD or a VHS tape, you always owned it. And we lost that for 20 years because we didn't have the technology to allow us to secure that in a digital fashion. Now we blockchain. do. So, the blockchain is the core yeah. of all of this. Correct. Correct. And so now that we have the ability to do that, we can actually learn from our past and we can learn from those consumption models of the past and think, well, what does it mean to issue a limited edition album in, with a thousand copies with exclusive mm. things for the fans in those thousand copies? Will they pay more because we can limit it to a thousand digital copies? Yes, mm -hmm. they will, because we're engaging our fans in that way. 
Johan, yeah. Johan, let me ask you, you talk about your five kids there. And this this really is the thing that I think needs to, to, to keep the sports industry awake. I, I think there is a, a chance, and I'm using the phraseology here that is very much a VC in Silicon Valley, that sports product market fit for the under 20s, certainly the under 15s, is significantly off the mark. And my industry has not realized that yet. What are you seeing with everything you're doing, uh, both at home and in work? Are kids still into sport the way they used to be? Um, frankly, no. They're playing a lot more esports. But that, that is also a sport, in my view. I mean, all of my kids are playing sports, basketball, you know, that's not a representative statistic for, for the word, but somebody should pull that up. But, but they do play both. It's just that they spend a lot of time online, you know, playing games too. I see, like, but I, I, so again, here's the thing. Since you can interact, you know, you, you can have an NFT that allows you to do incredible things in the metaverse, but also has a relationship to something in the physical world. So, you know, it's just a, it's a matter of figuring out, you know, user experiences and, you know, ways of doing, you know, constructing smart contracts and what kind of IP you build into it, what kind of mechanisms you build into it. It's almost like you're creating a narrative, you know, with these NFTs and that allows people to do various things. And I actually think that there's a benefit of, especially with the open metaverse, that you can have collaborative, you know, environments, which actually will, will you know, definitely... Uh, increase the level of innovation, in my view, because if you look back in, you know, in, in, in history, you'll see that innovation has thrived in open source or open societies where innovation has been allowed. And I think, of course, we're going to do sports. We've been, you know, that's, that's just a part of our evolution. We need to, you know, move and do things. And we'll, you know, smart people will create products that allows you to be physically active at the right level and with all this sensor data. And at the same time, you can bring that personal data into the metaverse. Like everything you're doing in the physical world is going to be, if you want to, you can bring it into the metaverse over time. So it's kind of, you know, through blockchain, these things, these two worlds can benefit from one another, first of all, the physical and the digital one, and they will merge over time. That's my view. Um, what I'm taking away from this, and remember, this is part one of this series, and, and it's so difficult to cover so much ground, but I think we've done okay. But what I'm taking away from this is that sport is the ultimate community business. And what Web3 is about the way to make communities work really well and give them a, a, an economy, give them a currency, and actually let them earn what they should earn. Uh, Robbie, is that why all the games that you do, they're all strong IP games? Is it because you're already looking for where the big communities are? Yes. And that's why the video game industry has worked with the sports industry for generations already. Because, mm. you know, we love to try to engage and build upon existing communities. That's our job. You know, from the perspective of sports, we're a brand extension, right? So the idea is that I build a game around some well-known sports IP, the Premier, Premier League, for example. And then um, I can not only appeal to existing Premiership fans, but I can bring in other types of fans who also will get to know the Premier League, who may actually just be interested in games first and then be exposed to the Premier League brands as a result of my game. So it's always been that kind of a harmonious partnership. I think the exciting thing about the medium is that we have so much flexibility. It can be a little daunting sometimes because there are so many things you can do with it. But imagine that you buy an NFT in a game and the NFT, you know, you buy a, you know, you buy a, a, a call it a, you know, Arsenal NFT, right? And that NFT entitles you, you know, so many times a year to attend an Arsenal match, in addition to the fact that it's a collectible piece of Arsenal merchandise. And so you start to combine the physical with the virtual. Mm, yeah. Um, and that's really exciting. And it, it could even be um, a playable item or a character of some kind. And I think that's my point. You'll bring your, your gear into the metaverse and you bring it back to the physical world. So, yes. you know, you're able to bring... That's, that's the interesting thing here. You're right, you're that, right. You're right. That energy can actually be, again, a playable item in, in a metaverse, whichever one it is, the sandbox, you know, 
the Central Land or, you know, Solis, which is the new we one. We didn't even um, get into all these new ones. We'll um, do Solana, that. right? Yeah. Well, and, and that and, is pretty awesome, to right? Throw, to throw the cat amongst the pigeons. And if they want, Chelsea can just then say, hey, anybody who has, you know, uh, an Arsenal NFT is welcome to come to our match for free. Exactly. Which, again, that's, yeah, that's very innovative. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that, that's all, a very my clear, audience is, provocative is, is idea. Throwing something at the computer at this point. <laughs> that's not how sport works, but, guys. That's not how it works. No, it's not. But but the but the idea is that you're building these communities, and it's all about aligning or offering incentives yeah. to people. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's no different than the pub having a buy one get one free special. Right. But also, Roger, like imagine if you're a fan of. Arsenal, you're hanging out on the Twitter all the time. And the, Twitter. You know, the fan base is very, very big, very big. But all of a sudden, if that is you know, associated with an NFT collection of some kind, you can actually use it as collateral for something else. Yeah, I know. Through, we'll, get into, you know interesting... we'll get into that whole world of... Oh, that's the next episode, I guess? Well, we've got six to go through the whole financial yeah. side of DeFi and staking and, and, and basically creating right. an alternative finance ecosystem around the assets that are digital. We're going to have to get into that. But for now, I think we need to, to draw a line under this because it's a huge um, brain dump. It, it really is. It's extremely complex. I hope people um, have got um, a lot of knowledge out of this and I'm going to uh, wrap it up now by, firstly, Johan, tell us where people can find you and follow you and um, get more of that, your insight into how you see this world. Uh, the best way to follow me is at Johan Juncker on Twitter uh, or uh, at Entourage Media on the Twitter too. Same to you, Robbie. Thank you so much for doing this. How can people follow what is undoubtedly undoubtedly the major player in this whole area, not for what you do with the games and the blockchain uh, activity and the IP and everything you talked about. Where can we find you? Can definitely, uh, you can definitely find us on the Twitter. Um, <laughs> so, you know, either Animoca Brands or, or my, own, my own account, you know, View from HK, because obviously we're headquartered in Hong Kong. So that's our spiritual home. Wonderful. Um, but yeah, would love to. Would love to. You know, chat with people and feel free to reach out. Wonderful. And of course, as always, if people want to follow me, you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, enjoy the rest of your afternoon, and thanks especially to Johan and Robbie. Great. Thank you. Take care, guys. <laughs> <laughs>